True Crime friends, welcome back to another episode of True Crime in Academia. I am your host, Mary DePippi. First of all, I hope you are all having a wonderful week so far. If not, that really sucks, and I really hope it gets better for you. I'm actually <laughs> recording this at 5.08 on Monday evening. And because it is happy hour, I have a drink. So for those of you who listen to this episode during your happy hour, cheers. So this week we are back into murder. I'm very excited, which is really awkward to say that I'm excited about murder. But you all know what I mean. For true crime fans, murder is like the creme de la creme of crime. So... I'm not trying to be insensitive. Obviously, it's horrible that people die. I'm not trying to say that. But for someone who is interested in true crime, yeah, I'm glad to be back to it. Um, But I hope you guys enjoyed the cheating scandal episodes. Um, As far as I can tell, it seems like you did. But, you know, always feel free. Let me know on social media at True Crime and Academia on Instagram. Let me know what your thoughts are. I would love to hear them. Truly. So like I said, this week we are back to Mirdare. Again, happy to be back with it as much as one can be in this situation. I have heard this one on two different podcasts and I kind of just was really like entranced by this story. It very loosely fits into academia. The killer in this situation dropped out of college And the person who was killed, it seemed like he was hoping to go back to get his PhD. So in those ways, it fits in, you know, with true crime and academia. But that's enough about that. Let's just get into it. On March 22nd in 2018, in Oak Hare, Wisconsin, a farmer named Don Sipple was sitting down to dinner after a long day when he heard a loud banging at his door. When he opened the door, he was shocked to see a young woman standing there, clothes torn, dirty, bloodied, and sobbing. When he asked her what was wrong, she couldn't give him a straight answer about her assault, nor remember her name when he asked, but she kept asking for a man named Jason Mengel. Don called the police, and the woman was taken to a nearby hospital and treated for her wounds. It was discovered that the word boy had been carved into her arm. A few days later, the woman's car was located, and inside was the body of a man named Alexander Woodward. Ezra McCandless was born on October 6, 1997, to her 14-year-old mother. Her birth name is not the same as her current name. This name that is one she gave to herself, it's her chosen name, And I'm only mentioning that just because if you look up this case, you will see that. And I just want to let you know, I'm not mentioning it because, I mean, you can look it up and find it for yourself. But honestly, it really has no bearing on this case. But again, if you want to look it up, feel free. Ezra's father was never in the picture. 
But later on, when her mother got married, the man that she married adopted her. The couple divorced when Ezra was 12, but it seemed like this man, her stepfather, stayed in her life as like a father figure. It was said that he would take her hunting and taught her how to use guns and knives. There is also evidence that he was verbally abusive towards her, or at the very least, it seemed like he talked down to her a lot and poked fun at her. In high school, Ezra began questioning her gender identity, and she would change her pronouns often. Now, currently, she goes by she, female pronouns, which is why I'm using female pronouns to describe her and will the entire time, just because that is how she now self-identifies. Ezra was into art, and based off of her pictures on Instagram, she was pretty good at it. And after high school, she did study art in college, but dropped out soon after. So right off the bat, I mean, it seems that she didn't, Ezra didn't have the easiest life. She was quoted saying that her, the relationship between her mom and her stepdad was like being around two tornadoes in some ways, um, which kind of just seems, you know, that they just fought a lot. And obviously, I think by having someone in that position of your life with that authority talk down to you so consistently, again, I'm referencing the stepfather, I think that can be really damaging, especially to a young child, you know, just because, again, your brain's not fully formed. You have this person in your life who, again, like I said, is like an authority figure, someone whose opinion maybe matters more to you than your peers. So to have them speak to you that way is kind is is really discouraging and depressing and... I, I can't say for sure that, like, she took any of this to heart. And, again, I've only seen this, like, in one or two places that this was the situation. It could be wrong. You know, sources get things wrong all the time. But, again, it that's just, from her own words, it seems like that's the situation that it was. Obviously, though, I don't think it was easy for Ezra's mother either. I mean, given she had Ezra at 14. I mean, I can't even imagine being a parent that young and I just want to clear the air. I am not shaming or nor will I shame Ezra's mother by any means. Sadly, teen pregnancy happens and, you know, yeah, there are a bunch of reality shows about that. Obvious. Well, not a lot, but as a millennial, you're probably familiar with MTV and 16 and Pregnant. So... I feel, which I honestly kind of feel like that was, I feel like it, maybe the aim was to try to get people to understand what it is like to be a teenager and to be pregnant and to be in that situation. But at the same time, I feel like they also just exploited those girls for money. But again, that's enough about that. Back to Ezra's mom. Again, I don't know how difficult it was. I don't even know her situation. So for all we know, she could have wanted to terminate the pregnancy and wasn't allowed to. Or even if she wanted to keep the baby, we don't know what it was like for her um, Ezra's mother's parents, Ezra's grandparents, if they were involved. Literally have no idea. But again, being the child of a teen parent, especially that young... I really don't know 
what that upbringing would be like. I feel like I would barely know myself as a human at 14. You know, I probably thought I did, but with that situation thrown into it, I, oh my gosh, I just can't imagine how hard that is. I mean, I'm up there in age. (laughs) No, I'm almost 30. So I know for my own self, like just thinking back, there's no way in hell I could have raised a kid or at least would have had the faculties and know how and the full understanding as to what goes into raising a child at 14. There's no way. No way in hell. And again, like I said, we don't know the situation. We don't know if Ezra's mother had help from her grandparents. We don't know if her grandparents dejected her, what it was like growing up with her for her mother. And it doesn't seem like there was abuse coming from the mom. There's nothing that she said that suggests that. But again, the situation in and of itself is very difficult. And I can imagine that Ezra in some capacity was affected by that situation and this isn't to excuse what she does in her adult life but as far as like pointing out what her psyche could be like or how it could have been affected based on her upbringing this is only the information I have and I can really just only speculate you know these are only my opinions so take them as you will (laughs) I'm just going off of looking at the facts and trying and making my own assumptions which can be very well be wrong but again there's nothing to suggest that she has an unhealthy relationship with her mother and I just think she might have been affected by the fact that her mother was 14 when she had given birth that's all at age 19 Ezra started seeing a 33 year old man named Jason Mengel Jason was a medic in the army and the two immediately fell in love Soon after, Ezra moved in with him, and the two pretty much had began discussing a future together. Ezra described their love as an ancient love that was so intense it scared them both. Now, obviously this age gap is not normal (laughs) for many people. There's a whole decade between them. All, like, the 20s. The age of the 20s. Not, like, the era 20s, but, like, the age of being from 20 to 29 30 is not there and just again from my own experience I feel like there's a lot of life experiences that happen to you during that time whether you want them to or not and because of that it seems awkward also she's 19 I mean technically yes she's legal but she's also still technically a teenager which I think also makes sense with how she describes their love. Which, again, I totally understand. I mean, let's just, I mean, my boyfriend and I, there are seven years between us. And I've dated guys with an even bigger age gap, probably as close to Ezra and Jason's. So, I mean, I get it. There, there really is something. It just it makes you feel good. And I think especially when someone who wants to be taken seriously is seen as more of an adult when an older person they're attracted to is interested in them. Because let's think about this from a societal standpoint, you know. When girls are young, and I can say this from knowing girl, you know, from being a girl, woman, we're told that we mature faster than 
our male counterparts. And I think for some girls, I know it did for me, that started, you know, that can start an interest in older men. And which obviously that can be toxic. You can obviously you can miss out on a great person because you're judging their mental maturity based on their age and not, you know, their actual brain where the maturity comes from. But also the fact that like, you know, depending on the age of the person and their maturity level and the things that they've experienced and things like that, it can also just be a toxic situation in that respect. So I completely understand why she would want to date him and why she was attracted to him. And even though I can't confirm what made her want to date him, I mean, again, it seems like they both just had instant chemistry and age didn't matter and yada, yada, yada. But I think to some extent, maybe society had some sort of play in that. Again, just knowing my experience as a girl and woman, having been told, like I said, that boys are less mature. They mature slower than you. For me, like, again, I'm only speaking from experience. I know that that's why I became more interested in older guys. And also when I experienced it myself and realized some of the guys that my age just weren't at the same level that I was. But when it's been impressed impressed upon you, not oppressed, impressed upon you like that, I think it can kind of put that blockage in your brain to think like, oh, maybe I should only date older guys because no guy my age or younger is ever going to be able to understand me because I'm more, quote unquote, mature. Not long after, though, Ezra met a substitute teacher and philosophy PhD hopeful named Alex Woodworth. And this was at a cafe called Racy Deline's shorthand. Everyone calls it Racy's from my understanding. Now, when Ezra approached him, Alex was actually writing about cannibalism. And for whatever reason, that the two of them hit it off and they realized they had a lot in common. And Jason even thought so, too. In fact, it was quoted that he said, like, he was the one who kind of pushed them together because he felt they had a lot in common and that Ezra should have someone who shared the interests that he didn't share with her. And eventually, he actually formed a friendship with Alex as well. From what I'm seeing, like, again, this main interest that they, the two of them shared was philosophy. Seems like Jason really wasn't into that. But, I mean, again, it seems innocent when you think about it. I mean, okay, cannibal, the fact that they started talking because he was writing about cannibalism is a little weird. But... And I mean, it's also not the most welcoming topic (laughs) to draw someone in with. But, you know, again, I am a true crime fan. So if I saw someone writing about cannibalism, I would be like, oh, what are you writing about? Is this a particular case? You know, which cannibal are you talking about? You know, and then I would be spewing all the details I knew about the cannibals that I knew about. (laughs) What we learned about Alex It's not like he was necessarily interested in partaking in cannibalism, but I think he was definitely interested in the idea of cannibalism and what cannibalism is and yada, yada, yada. But obviously, (laughs) this did not deter Ezra, but instead brought her in. Now, things between 
Alex and Ezra grew, and they eventually did have an affair. Jason found out, and it was actually Ezra who broke off things with both Jason and Alex before she moved back in with her dad. She still kept in touch with them both, technically. Mainly Jason, though. And this wasn't the only time Ezra had... I had a really hard time wording this, and... It's hard to say, like, that she wasn't faithful and was having an affair in this next instance that I'm about to tell you about, because technically, her and Jason were broken up. We were on a break. Sorry, that's my Ross impression from Friends, (laughs) because that was how I read that situation. But anyway, basically, Ezra, aside from Alex and their affair, later on, after they were broken up, she had also had sex with one of... Jason's friends and this was all why Jason was away I'm guessing being an army medic he was gone at that point but for that I mean so you know he comes back from this and instead of being like oh yeah I had sex with your friend which I mean no one would really want to say that to the guy they want to get back with but instead she goes and she tells Jason that this friend she had sex with sexually assaulted her. So being the good guy that Jason is, he immediately takes her to the police station to file a report. But while investigating Ezra's assault, police found a string of sexually suggestive and provocative messages between Ezra and Jason's friends. Now, (laughs) before we get in just briefly, before we get into these texts, Obviously, cheating is not something I condone, and that is all. You know, if you want an open relationship, I feel like there are ways to have that discussion. But none of those were had. Therefore, cheating is seen as like a betrayal. And in this case, she was betraying Jason. So now, back to these text messages that... The cops wanted to basically poke holes and say that she wasn't sexually assaulted because of the fact that they were sexual in nature. I want to make this very clear. (laughs) Just because you send someone sexually suggestive texts or even sex with that person, you do not owe them sex. Consent can be taken away at any time, and text messages do not automatically confirm consent. I really hate the fact that these cops wanted to use those text messages to prove that she wasn't sexually assaulted, which she wasn't, and we'll get into. But it also makes me wonder, like, how many officers or how many sexual assault cases have been brushed aside because... But maybe because the woman was sexting or sending provocative texts to their assailants, but they weren't believed because they sent those messages. Again, I think it's really fucked up. Sexting, sending sexually suggestive text messages, words, whatever, is not like, oh yeah, they consent. And it is not a blanket overall consent. If anything, it only actually proves <laughs> That that person consented to sexting or having that type of conversation and not actual sex. However, though, 
it seems like those weren't the only texts that the police were interested in. Ezra had also been texting Alex, which I have seen sort of conflicting um, sources. Some say that she told him directly. Some say that she had texted him this. I'm going to go with that she texted him. Either way, he knew. And that's the whole point. She basically tells Alex that she had sex with this guy and she regretted it, which is why she was saying that it was sexual assault. And Alex was the one to basically tell the police, hey, she was lying. She told me that the sex was consensual. She just regretted it. I mean, <sighs> there, there's a lot to unpack here. And we can't ignore the fact that she did confess to Alex. Because, I mean, again, she filed a false report. And it makes me really pissed that she would file a false report like that. Or any woman would file. Or any person. I shouldn't just close it in off, off of gender. Any person would report like that. Because even though the number of false sexual assault claims are very low. They are always used as like quote unquote proof. Or as an excuse to not believe actual victims of sexual assault. And for that I am extremely pissed at her <laughs> for doing that. Again, I'm not laughing because it's funny. I'm laughing because I'm pissed and this is uncomfortable. And just like, it's a what the fuck reaction for me. But still, Jason and Ezra had been in contact despite all of this. And Ezra was desperately trying to win Jason back. So much so that she even said to him that the men in her life are trying to manipulate her to keep her away from him. From what I've seen, though, it seems like Jason was not buying this. Or even if he was buying it, he just had no plans to get back with her. Hey, true crime friends. You've heard me talk about my amazing friend Mandy before. She makes the best crochet, pre-cut, and custom home decor for reasonable prices. If you're looking for a one-of-a-kind gift or some new decor to add some new life into your home... Look no further. Mandy has got you. I have quite a few items from her, ranging from a crocheted headband to Halloween decor items to my amazing and adorable Coraline ornament. Um, if you guys haven't noticed, I'm like obsessed with Coraline and I just love how Mandy makes it. She's also made me a Coraline doll that sits next to all of my true crime books. To order, just slide in her DMs on Facebook and Instagram at Mandy Made It. That's M-A-N-D-E-E, -E, Made It, on Facebook and Instagram. Once again, go to Mandy Made It on Facebook and Instagram. Send her a DM and order today. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters. And, what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Early March 22nd of 2018, Jason walked into Racy's and was surprised to find that Ezra was there. The two had exchanged 600 text messages, or points, or actually points of contact, 
the day before, and she hadn't mentioned at all that she would be back in Eau Claire. When he asked her why she was in town, she tells him that she was there to show Alex some of her new writings. For whatever reason, Jason did not have a good feeling about this and wound up following Ezra to Alex's on his bike. And again, I just want to say there are also conflicting reports as to how Jason knew she was here. I'm going off the fact that he saw her at this place, which is also where she tracked down Alex and got him to meet up with her. But again, this is these are some of the facts that I just found to be most consistent. It also isn't sure, like... <laughs> If he knew within those 600 texts if something was going on. Which, that is not a fake number. That is a very real number from the police report. That it was like 600 points of communication or texts. Which I believe. And that's a lot for like a day. I mean, I don't even talk to my boyfriend that much in a day. We both have too much going on at work and other things. So, it's also not said what they talked about and it was as far as I know it was never made public and like I said I, I found it odd that Jason decided to follow her to Alex's and you know maybe it was a gut feeling but also maybe he knew something we don't know for sure but I'm more inclined to think that he just had a gut feeling because if there was actual evidence that he knew that something was going to happen between Ezra and Alex, then he would have been charged with like accessory or something or, you know, for not having said anything. So because of that fact that he wasn't charged or there wasn't enough to charge him with that, I, I'm i going to go with the, that he had an instinct that something wasn't right with this meeting between Ezra and Alex. When Jason arrives at Alex's, he describes that Ezra and Alex were wearing masks. And basically he, what he means by that, he explained, was saying that like it was obvious that they were trying to pretend that everything was okay when it was obvious to him that there was something very intense going on before he walked in. And intense not like in the sexual way. Intense like in the, ooh, something's up kind of a way. Not too long police officers arrive. And again, I've seen conflicting reports about who called the police. Some say it was Jason who called the police. And some say that it was a neighbor who had seen Jason pacing outside of Alex's place before going inside. Either way, though, the cops were called and they showed up. When they arrived, though, Jason tells them that he feels like something isn't right between Ezra and Alex and that something's wrong and that he fears that something bad is going to happen. They also question Alex and Ezra, but they both insist that everything was fine and without an actual crime being committed, the police leave. And Jason actually leaves shortly after. Soon after Jason leaves, Alex and Ezra decide to take a ride in her car. It's later that evening that Ezra shows up to Don Sipple's house and with her clothes torn apart, covered in mud, her mouth appeared to have dried blood around it, and she had the word boy carved into her arm. She tells Don that she had been attacked, but when he tries to get more information from her, she's unable to tell him, saying she doesn't remember at one point, she can't says she can't even remember her own name. So Don calls the police, 
and Ezra is taken to the hospital to be treated for her wounds. Now, when police questioned her at first, she insisted she couldn't remember anything about her attack other than feeling that she was afraid of Alex Woodward. Meanwhile, Alex was also being reported missing by his family. Without any other evidence to go on, police decided to go back to Don Sipple's farm. They noticed a money trail, and they were able to actually find Ezra's footprints. When they follow them back, they find her car, which is very distinctive. It's a white car. It's a white, like, compact car. I suck at car names, so I couldn't tell you the make or model of it. But what's distinctive about it is that she's got a few figures and things, like a cactus it almost looks like, kind of painted on the hood. And then at the very top of the roof of the car is a huge, like, black bird, maybe a raven, I'm not sure, uh, riding a bicycle. But in the car they found hanging out of the back seat was the body of Alex Woodworth. He had been stabbed over 16 times in the head, neck, groin, and torso. Little by little, Ezra would give police a few details here and there, claiming, you know, that it was hard for her to remember what had happened and that, you know, she must have blocked it out. But even the bits and pieces of her story and eventually the stories that she spins don't add up. She said that Alex was the one who had carved the word boy into her arm because that's what he sometimes call her. Now, some sources say that this was to poke fun at her changing gender identity, and some thought maybe it was more of a term of endearment. I can't really say for sure, but like I can't imagine being someone struggling with their gender identity, wanting to be called by or like referred to even in jest as the gender I no longer identify with. But who knows? But there was a problem with this. Because the way in which boy was carved into her arm would have meant that Alex would have had to write it backwards. And if you're trying to hold someone down and carve into their arm, I feel like that would be not only extremely difficult in the first place, it would have been written facing the way he was writing just because that is the path of least resistance. I highly doubt he would have had the wherewithal to write it in the opposite direction. But anyway, this opposite direction basically proves that these wounds or this carving was self-inflicted. She also claimed to have grabbed the hunting knife that he was using to carve her arm with, with her bare hands. But none of the wounds on her hands were deep enough to be consistent with grabbing a blade in an effort to take it from someone. The autopsy also revealed that the first stab wound appeared to be one to the back of the head. And there were virtually no defensive wounds, suggesting that he didn't know what it was coming. But in Ezra's story, she claims that Alex attacked her and had intended to rape her. When police confronted Ezra about the impossibility of Alex creating the carved word in her arm, she admitted to lying and said that she did it to remember what happened to her. But needless to say, this unravels her version of events. By admitting this one <laughs> time that she lied, the rest of her story kind of just falls apart. And from this point on, Ezra keeps changing her story even up until the day of her trial. At her trial, Ezra says, and these are again, her version of the events. She said that she and Alex went for a drive but got stuck out somewhere where the car was found. She got out of the car and, you know, she was trying to figure out how to get them out and that Alex really did nothing to help. 
She says then that Alex told her to lie in the back of the car, which then he got on top of her and told her that he was going to have her one last time. She said then he took the hunting knife that she had had in her car that day and began using it to tear off her clothes. And when she got the knife from him, she used it against him in self-defense. I just want to say this true crime fan here, me, I'm calling bullshit on Ezra's story. Obviously for the fact that it's been proven, the evidence is there that her version of events didn't happen. I mean, there are just so many holes in the consistent switching of her story, but it also just seems so obvious that she intended to kill Alex as a way to win back Jason. And again, we already discussed this and we've seen this pattern of like strange, of this really weird damsel in distress act before because she did it when she accused Jason's friend of sexually assaulting her. I mean, it's clear or at least obvious to me, again, these are my observations and opinions. Let's not put them as fact. But it just seems like, you know, with the accusing of his friend of sexual assault to bring him back, I mean, it's a, qu- it's a huge escalation of action, but the motives are still there. And I... Honestly, the more when I learned a lot about Jason, I do think he has this caretaker personality. And I strongly suspect that Ezra used that to manipulate him and to get him back into her life. And I really do think that she was hoping that if she spun this story of, oh my God, Alex attacked me, I had to kill him, please come back to me, I need you that might have brought him back. I can't say for sure. I don't really know. But in her mind, at least, I think that was the goal or what she thought what would happen. And let's face it. I mean, we see this all the time. People who are manipulative tend to prey on the caretaker types. Because the caretaker types are going are more willing to give them the attention and the things that they need now I don't necessarily think that that was how this relationship started with Jason but it seems like that's how it definitely turned out Ezra McCandless was convicted of first degree intentional homicide and was sentenced to life in prison with the opportunity for parole in 2070 Ezra maintains that she acted in self-defense and it seems like she is pretty active on Instagram I'm not saying, like, go out and, like, follow her on Instagram. I don't think you should follow someone who is a killer. Because from what I saw, it looks like she is still selling her art. And which is how I even saw her art to begin with. To even make the judgment that she was a decent artist. But, yeah, I mean, don't don't follow. Don't like. Again, these are just my suggestions. Because she is a killer, She definitely did it as a way to manipulate, and I don't think she realized the full gravity of what she did as far as the full picture is concerned. I feel like she did it for a lot of selfish reasons, and in those selfish reasons, I think she justified it to herself. So, and again, it's not right. If you want to look, go ahead. You can find that. I'm just asking. Please don't follow. Just you know, don't support a fucking killer, (laughs) you know? But if you are curious, 
as I was, feel free to look at her Instagram. I did see somewhere that she did appeal. I forget what year it was. I want to say maybe in 2020. I think I saw the court date. It was on Court TV, actually. If you want to see her trial, it is on Court TV. I will. Ha- it's one of the sources in my description when I give you all my sources. So you can look at that. There are also a few YouTube videos. Uh, 48 Hours did a special on this. I will see what I can do to try and link those down. I think I can get the links for those. Even though I didn't necessarily watch them. So I can't really tell you what it's about. um, Or what facts they lay out for you. But yeah, I mean also it's extremely disturbing. But if you want to see the writing... (laughs) The carving of the boy into her arm. Um, there are pictures of that everywhere. It, but for those who would be disturbing to please don't. Please just don't. For your own mental health. <laughs> if you can avoid it, avoid it. It is also, again, one of the sources that I've linked below has pictures of the evidence. And that is one of them. So, again, just proceed with caution. That's all I ask. I know for myself, I have these, you know, obviously I wouldn't be here if I didn't have morbid curiosities, right? But even for me, I know I get to a point where I'm like, okay, maybe this is a little too much. Certain crime scene photos, I'm like, I just can't, I just can't, can't look at them. They're hard to stomach, hard to process, and even harder to get out of your head. So do your own research into that. Um, Also, um, with the link that has the carving beforehand it has a picture of what her car looks like so you can also see that there that's a bit lighter um but yeah as always proceed with your research and looking into this further with caution and that is all i have for you this week guys oh my goodness i can't oh shoot i can't believe it's been this is a longer episode i feel like than most but And I was half tempted to split this episode into two, but at the end of the day, I really just felt like it could be just one little bit longer cohesive episode, especially since the last two episodes about the cheating scandals were a bit shorter. So in some ways, I'm making it up to you guys. I don't know. But anyway, I hope you all enjoy the rest of your week. Please follow, comment, like, subscribe. Wherever, you know, on Apple, on Spotify, wherever you listen to this podcast, um, do all of the things there. It helps us. Also, follow us on social media at True Crime and Academia on Instagram, at the Ivory Tower Boiler Room on Instagram, at Ivory Boiler Room on Twitter, and the Ivory Tower Boiler Room on Facebook. If you want to show us some love please subscribe to our Patreon. We would love for you to do that because it helps us to keep giving you all this awesome content. We also have some really amazing extras for you as well. Speaking of a patron, shout out to Joe Maholland. Thank you for being a patron. If you would like to have your name read out or spoken about mentioned on the episode then become a patron because at the end of each episode i will say who a patron is so again thank you joe mahalan for being one of our patrons and i hope you're doing well as always please stay safe out there wear your masks social distance 
get the vaccine, get boosted, do all of the things. I love you. I want you to be safe. Okay. And until next week, I will see you later. True Crime in Academia is an Ivory Tower Boiler Room podcast. Members of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room include Andrew Rimby, Executive Director, Mary DePippi, Chief Contributor, and Jaron Usta, Marketing Director. Don't forget to like, rate, follow, and subscribe to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room on your favorite podcast platform. And go to our Patreon in the podcast description below to become a patron and have access to exclusive, never-before-seen content.